Hello everyone. Welcome to our weekly Saturday Dhamma session. I'll talk a little bit about the Dhamma and then we'll have a Q&A session as normal. With me today is Chris to ask questions. Chris will be relaying your questions to me and behind the scenes we have Max and Olivia here to help organize the questions. Questions should be about practice, they should be important to you. And important to you doesn't mean that you hold them to be important, but they should actually have, you have to be careful of the difference. You have to see what's truly important, something that is actually necessary, a question that is important for your practice. We want to help people. And we don't help people just because we ask answer their questions. We help people when we provide answers that are useful, that are important, that are helpful. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just about practice, but it should be something that you need an answer to. Not just speculation or theory or curiosity or so on. Some Some questions should just not be asked, it's true. Some questions should be solved by letting them go. You have to always remember that. Some questions we just have to let go. So please don't take it the wrong way. If we don't answer your question, we may not have time to get to all of them, but we're here to help. We're not trying to be critical or uh, unpleasant. So try to be pleasant and kind and thoughtful. Remember, everyone here is here out of the goodness of their heart. And so please be kind to the people who are organizing and presenting the questions. Be careful in your grammar and so on. If you can, if, you, if your English is not your first language, don't worry too much about grammar. Do what you can and just try to get the message across. We're much more concerned about the content. And for everyone else, if you don't have questions or if you've asked your question, posted your question in the chat, you can go ahead and just close your eyes. We don't have video up because we don't expect you to be watching this video unless you have to read the questions on the on the screen. Expect everyone to be engaging with us in the practice and the cultivation of the Dhamma. So you can just close your eyes and begin to approach reality with a mindful perspective, seeing things as they are coming and going, cultivating this clarity of mind that sees things just as they are, without judgment or reaction. this pure thought, pure state of mind. Purity. 
The Buddha's path has often been called the path of purification. He himself talked about the path of purification, the path to purification, the path to purity. Visuddhi manga, manga visuddhiyo, isa mango visuddhiya, the path to, to purification, for purification. really an apt way of describing the practice and the path, the goal. It's a good answer to the question of what's it for. If you want to get a good context, why are we doing what we're doing, and put your, get your mind in the right perspective as to why and what the, what the final result should be, purity is a good answer. This morning in our study group, we were talking about this. That's why it's come up in my mind now. It's something I've talked about before. It's a really good way of describing the path, outlining the steps on the path, and helping helping to see the depth of the practice, that there is a, a, a timeline, or what do you call it, a set of directions like if you if you in the olden days when you followed map quest google google maps now when you follow google maps it gives you a list of directions you used to have to print them out you go to your computer you get directions and then you'd print them out and you'd hold them on your dashboard and or on your steering wheel and you'd follow the directions step by step so that's what the path of purification, as outlined in the text, gives you that, gives you step-by-step -step instructions, not not down to the every turn, but it gives you that sort of thing. It gives you a direction. I think it really provides a, an eye-opening look at where we're headed, provides clarity to meditators who are skeptical or uncertain as to whether they're making progress or where they're going or what this is actually for. So an important topic. A couple of notes about purification. First of all, purification means specifically something mental. Purification relates to the purification of the mind. There is no purification of the body or our uh, experience in the world. So we're not talking about pure experiences in the sense of never experiencing pain or displeasure or uh, uncomfortable situations, challenges, hardships. And we're not talking about purification of the body, which is actually something spiritual people do in some traditions. They try and purify the body. The body is something that can't be purified, first of all, conventionally, because it's inherently impure. And in an ultimate sense, is it's either you could say it's inherently pure, 
or it's inherently beyond purity. It's not something that is susceptible to any kind of purification. There's no meaningful way you can talk about the body as being pure, except conventionally to say that it's very impure, because it is. Conventionally and practically speaking, the body is constantly producing impurities, bad smells, secretions of sweat, producing blood and phlegm and the bones and the sinews and the flesh and the skin, flaking off skin cells and so on. The, the yellowing of our teeth, the, the buildup of oils in our scalp and so on. So practically, from a conventional sense, it's all very impure. And any kind of purity is never going to get rid of the essence, the essential truth that the body is not made up of diamonds. It's not made up of sugar and spice and all things nice, whether you're male or female. Pretty putrid. Or basically, one monk described it as us being basically walking, walking porta potties. A porta potty is a, I don't know if that's a Canadian thing, but portable, portable outhouse, portable toilet. Because it keeps its, it has a reservoir for impurity. So until you dump it out, it's got this reservoir and everything we eat and drink is mixed together and it's squeezed, all the nutrients are squeezed out of it and then there's this putrid part that is kept and squeezed through the intestines. It's not really a, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the system per se, it's just not so nice. It's like the sewer, the sewer part. If we were a city, we would also have a sewer. But in an ultimate sense, there's nothing impure about the body per se, smells and tastes and feelings. It's all just sensation. It's all just experience. There's no purity or impurity. It's ju it just is. But in the mind, the same isn't true. The mind does have some very real, practical, and in an ultimate sense, purity and impurity. They're very beautiful mind states, and you can see it in, in yourself and others when you have pure and beautiful states of mind or when you see others as being so pure and innocent and, and perfect. Or the opposite, when you get angry or when someone else is angry at you or cruel, you see how mean and wicked people can be. And there's no question that even practically speaking, we see that as impurity. Someone is perverse. And we have many ideas of what is perverse. It's not to say that uh, it's not to say that we should be guilty or 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 uh, zealous, I guess, about denouncing people. So if someone is is uh, addicted to food or or sex, 
if some when people are addicted to things like masturbation or so on, you shouldn't be angry or or all fire and brimstone as they say, telling them they're going to hell or so. I mean, these are not these are not fatal flaws, but they're impurities. They're impure. They relate to the, the creation of this putrid state of humanity, they increase it. So if you think about humanity, maybe 3,000 years ago, does that make sense? You could say there was a greater purity in, in life. Sure, we live more simply and ruggedly, perhaps, 3,000 years ago. But in the time of, or 2,000 years ago, in the time of uh, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the the Buddhists, the Hindu, the, the Brahmins. There was no pollution like there is now. There was no uh, rubbish, you know. I remember when I was in Israel, we were many years before I was a monk. I was in Israel and we went on this. I went with some family on this archaeological tourist trip. And we saw the garbage, and we saw people's garbage from 3,000 years ago or however many thousand years ago, and it was all pottery shards. It's much more pure than, than what you'd find if you went rummaging through our garbage. It would become pretty, pretty disgusting. When I walked on alms this morning, you can smell the, 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 the dump from somewhere. Because we live in great, uh, there, there's many more of us now, and we live in, in great density. When I was in Thailand, you can smell the urine in the highly populated areas. They don't have very good sewage, I think, some places. Anyway, the point being that a lot of our, I would say a lot of our greed has increased our, or has continuously uh, intensified our impurity of, of our physical impurity. So this is something we seek to address with meditation. It's really a main essential part of the practice. It describes well the path and so on. And as we saw in the study this morning, there are seven stages of purification. This is what I meant by the path and, and how it relates to our practice. And they go in order, like relay chariots. You begin with the first and it leads to the second and second leads to the third, and the third leads to the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. So it really makes a good path. It was the basis of the content of the, the book by that very name called the Visuddhimagga. It's a very famous ancient commentary on the Buddha's teachings called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, that uses the seven purifications as its outline. And and the the importance of that book in our practice, in our tradition, 
should tell you something about how important and how central this, this teaching is. So the first is purification of, of virtue or ethics, sila visuddhi. Sila really just means something like behavior. Literally means normal, but that meaning the meaning there is how you normally behave. What is a person's normal? Is their sila. So how a person normally is. If you're normally a very cruel person or a wicked, evil, mean and nasty person, then you have your dusila. Greedy, angry, deluded, dusila. If you act, if you act in those ways, like hurting others or clinging to things or being arrogant, dusila. And sila is the the very basis of purification. It's the first one because it's the outward. It's the outward expression of purity or impurity. It relates to our physical and mental, our physical and verbal actions, what we say and what we do. Of course, what we say and what we do is very much related to our state of mind. And so in order to work inwards, we start from, from the outward because that's where action occurs. That's where our activity is. We do and we say things. That's what we do. So the beginning of our practice is to begin to do and to say things in such a way that is cultivate, that is conducive and cultivating purity. And that's where meditation practice comes in. Meditation practice is a physical thing, right? Or it starts as a physical thing. The actual practice requires physical activity, whether it's walking back and forth or sitting still. It requires some reference to our physical uh, state. And the Visuddhimagga talks about this, how if you want to understand the mind, if you want to purify the mind, you begin by focusing not on the mind, but on the body. It's like a hunter trying to find a deer. The deer being the defilements here, or the impurities, or the, the, the wrinkles in the fabric of the mind. What's causing the problem? If you want to find it, don't go running out through the forest after the deer. Go to where the deer is likely to come. Go to the water or the fruit trees and wait there. And that's what, that's what we do when we focus on the body. Our focusing on the body allows us to catch the mind and observe the mind. Let's not talk about deer hunting. It's a pretty awful thing, but a, suppose you're a wildlife photographer. I'm going to start using that instead. You're a wildlife photographer and you want to shoot nice pictures like my mother shoots pictures of birds, but she doesn't go chasing after the birds. She actually sits still and waits for the birds to come to her. And all the birds, they come. She gets to take pictures of them. And so our, our, our actions and our speech are very important as a first step. That's why we engage in meditation retreats, because untrained, 
left to ourselves in life, it's quite possible we can be mindful, but it's much more likely that we're going to be sidetracked by actions and speech that lead and encourage impurity, encourage us to cultivate habits that hurt ourselves and hurt others. By impurity, we just mean that, that which hurts ourselves and hurts others. Ultimately, this sila then is the very breakdown of our moment-to-moment -moment acts and, and speech. Every moment being present with our actions. This is why we say to ourselves, step being right, step being left. Not because the foot is at all interesting, but because the state of mind of being present, the quality of that act, the quality of the mind engaged in that act is very pure. And so this is the second purification, jitta-visuddhi, the purification of those moments of, of experience. Second purification is jitta, jitta meaning mind, but it means this the moments, having these pure states of mind every moment. When you say to yourself, stepping right, your mind can become very pure in that moment very clear, very ordinary, very simple, free from any baggage. When you say pain, pain, you can become, you can come to experience pain as just pain and it's very pure and you find all the baggage of disliking the pain or wanting to get rid of it or planning to fix it. You find all that starts to fade away. After purity of mind comes purity of view. Purity of view means you begin to see things as they are. It's very important. We talk about non-self in Buddhism. Non-self just refers to our perspective that removes this view of things as being me or mine. You start to see experiences just as experiences. It's quite simple, actually. And you realize that a lot of our baggage and the per perception we have of things is just an abstraction. It's nothing to do with the actual experience. Experience really only has physical and mental phenomena arising and ceasing. After Diti Visuddhi comes Kanka Vitarana Visuddhi, which is purification by overcoming doubt. So this is sort of the uncertainty about how the world works. It's it's phrased that way, I think, because of the importance in the doctrine of of cause and effect. Cause and effect is is one of the most core and important teachings of the Buddha. It's probably the most core and important part of the practice of the path to see what leads to what, to see how craving leads to suffering, right? The, the first two noble truths. And so it's called overcoming doubt because this is the this is where the certainty comes from. It, it's not just about seeing things as they are. It's about seeing what needs to be done. 
seeing what's causing the problem. As you start to look at the physical and mental aspects of experience, you start to see what's causing problems. And you have no doubt at that point. It's a very important stage. It said that this stage, a person who reaches this stage, which is pretty early on actually, a person practicing a few days intensively can come to this stage. A person who reaches this stage is said to be safe, said to be uh, assured in this life to not go to hell or not be, not be reborn in the next life in a bad way for this life. Now they could lose it all in the next life and go back to being a bad or wicked person if they don't continue to develop. But it's so powerful, this certainty that you get from seeing things, seeing the difference between that which leads to peace and happiness and that which leads to suffering and stress. Once you've done that, then, then you begin to look towards the way out. You start to gravitate, the mind naturally begins to gravitate towards solutions. Not in terms of fixing per se, but in terms of getting, getting out of this or, or working it out. And so the next one is called Magga Magganyana Dasanavisuddhi, purification by knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. It's a mouthful. But what it means is the, the meditator begins to begins to filter out their activities and, and seek towards those that are actually beneficial. And up until this point, the meditator might be very much fixated on positive or pleasant states. And it's, it's the challenge here, and it, it can be quite a challenge and an, an important point for a teacher, where the teacher plays an important role in guiding the meditator towards those practices that are conducive to freedom and away from those practices which are not most commonly relating to positive states. A meditator will often become fixated on pleasure, calm. Uh, so there's, there's many of them. I've talked about them elsewhere. Uh, bright lights they might see, visions they might have, you know, sounds they might hear, thoughts they might have, like knowledge. The meditator can gain so much knowledge from the practice, and it seems like thinking about it and going over it, and working things out, because the mind has now become much more efficient at that. So you get lost in that. Seeing what is and isn't the path is an important point where the meditator sees that none of that is really the path or is really inherently useful. The only thing that's useful is to continue to seeing things, to see things clearly. And so eventually they break through that and are on the path. The next purification is called purification of practice purification by knowledge and vision of the path. Knowledge and vision of the practice. And this is the meat of the core of the the path or the the progression.
This is where all the work is done because now the meditator is on the right path and they just work through it. And they start to see more clearly their habits. They start to dissect things and just the clarity, shining the light on it, on, on things we've never shined light on before. We've never really looked in this way to this extent at this depth. And just doing so for the first time often really changes a person quite quite profoundly. And this is the path of purification. The mind becomes pure because it becomes simpler. Just by seeing it's like the purity of the shining the light, so the disinfectant of sunlight. Like in investigative journalism, they shine light on things and it really can help just shining light on things as long as it's not manipulative, right? Journalism can be quite powerful in exposing corruption and so on. In the same way, we expose corruption in our own minds, not by trying to fix anything, just by showing it, just by seeing it, showing it to ourselves. See, see what you're doing. Until finally we have simply jnana dasana visuddhi, knowledge, purification by knowledge and vision which means true knowledge and vision or the highest knowledge and vision, which is knowledge and vision of freedom, knowledge and vision of liberation, of, of cessation of suffering. And this comes when the mind is perfect, sees things perfectly and lets go. And that's of course the summum bonum or the ultimate goal of the, of the practice. So that's the Dhamma for today. It's now been a half an hour, so I'm going to stop right there. But uh, a very important teaching, something to explore further if you're interested in theory. But much more to explore through meditation if you're truly interested in realizing it for yourself. So we're moving now into question period. I'll ask the moderators to... Close the chat. Chat will now be only open to questions. I'm going to pin Olivia's comment. Thank you, Olivia. We're ready to begin, Chris, whenever you're ready. Okay, let's begin. I have problems staying mindful when I am trying to settle down naughty children at my job and I'm thinking of quitting because of this. Is it expected that practice is hard in a lay life like this? So working with children could be could be beneficial. The problem with children that I think is not really well appreciated by a lot of people is that they're not they're not pure. There's not really a purity of, of youth. There's a simplicity, and there's a lack of sexual desire, which, you know, that purifies things a lot. But that's just immaturity, really. Kids can be very crude and uh, manipulative and, and have all the potential for impurities because their delusion is in full force. And so they can be quite difficult and, and furthermore don't have the maturity to understand the truth. You can't teach meditation to a five-year-old. 
it's hard to teach it to a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old. Well, it's hard to teach it to anyone, to be fair, but mostly, mostly until they reach 18, 20, it's, it's really rare to find someone who with a maturity to appreciate, let alone practice the teaching. So it's not as beneficial as one might think when you think of how wholesome it might be to teach children. On the other hand, because of the challenge and because of the potential, you know, to, to change someone's life from the very outset, there's a great there's a great potential there, I think, if you've got the patience and the stamina to deal with it. But that's I think the point and what I would say about your question more directly is that lay life is hard and and has varying degrees of difficulty based on on the level of your practice so has differing levels of difficulty based on what you do like i would say working with children is more difficult than many other lines of work but irrespective of that it's going to be much easier or much harder dependent on your state of mind so in, in this case where you have a, a challenging workload the the best solution besides quitting is to spend some time cultivating your own purity of mind and you can't easily do that on the job but if you can do it on the job or off the job then the level of difficulty is reduced dramatically and you have so you have to see it like that that actually ultimately there is no problem working with children there's no problem doing anything it's more challenging for a newcomer and potentially impossible, practically speaking, for a newcomer to be to cultivate mindfulness in certain uh, situations. But if one is able to cultivate purity, then then the difficulty just goes away. I mean, it's not a difficult situation; it's just experiences, right? The problem is you're dealing with many and frequent trigger experiences that trigger in you unwholesome states of mind. Having problems saying staying mindful is just a part of the challenge, so you don't have to worry too much about that, but I would suggest evaluating whether you're able to, in your current life, um, train yourself. I mean, really what I'm trying to say is m many of us, most of us, require some previous training before we can go out and do these things in the world mindfully. You can't just be expected to develop mindfulness if you're working a stressful job. You can. It's, it's, it's much, much harder, and it's, it's unnecessarily difficult because at the same time as you're developing wholesomeness, you're also developing unwholesomeness, and it's just clashing. If you were to spend a bit of time with intensive training in a more peaceful situation, if that's at all possible, then you would find that you have stream you have you have fast forwarded your progress and and the mindfulness you do engage in at work is much more valuable you see do the training first 
instead of trying to do on-the-job training in mindfulness. Now, that being said, it's not impossible most of the time. And if you aren't able, uh, the best thing to do is to see, try and have the proper perspective on things. When you have to be in situations that are challenging, just remind yourself of your perspective. The perspective is this is just experience. Try and see it just as experience and, and approach it in that way. It's challenging, but it's, uh, it's possible. How does someone cease hatred, greed, and delusion? Well, I think I just basically summed it up. If you haven't read our booklet, I would recommend you do that. You're welcome to take an at-home course if you like. But um, basically through the path of purification, that's greed, anger, and delusion. I hope you were listening because I did just I, I tried to just talk about that. I have a lack of dreaming while sleeping at night after long and regular meditation. Is it a good signal that I am on the right path? It is, though I would caution you against looking for such signals because you'll become discouraged because of how complicated the mind is when things change. Instead of looking for signals that you're on the right path, start to address the worry or the doubt about whether you're on the right path. Because it's very easy for the mind to start to doubt even when it's seeing clear, seeing for itself. You know, you're seeing for yourself the benefits. And even still, the mind is so tricky that it starts to fall into doubt anyway. So don't let that happen. When it's doubting, say doubting or worried, say worried. And don't worry about results. Just be confident and, and contented in how, how pure your practice is, how, how wholesome it is. And just keep it up. When you do the work, it's like when you're working, when you have a job, you don't think about payday or that sort of thing. You just think about your work. And just keep thinking about your work. For people who can do this, instead of thinking about when's the day going to be over, when am I going to get paid, they're much more efficient and much more happy and much more at peace with their work, right? Just do your work. And when payday comes, you'll get paid. And 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 more if we take money out of the situ out of the equation, simply the work gets done. And the work is the accomplishment. If you're a, a hobbyist, you get lost in your work and absorbed in your work and just focusing on the work and then you look up and wow, your 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 project is finished, and you weren't even focused on that. That's how it should be. Although not quite getting lost, it's being mindful, right? Outside of formal meditation, would you recommend noting the four body positions over specific phenomena? like touching, lifting, pulling, placing? So the four postures are more basic. They're the kind of thing you always come back to. But that's usually overridden when you have a movement. So you move, and you say moving or bending or pressing or pushing, pulling. 
And then when you're done with that, then you go back to the body. But there's no hard and fast rule here. It's not like one way is going to work and one way is not going to work. It's just general principles. Remember, this is just a tool. It's not magic. It's not like you have to figure it out exactly, the right sequence or something. Use it as a tool, as, as a means of seeing clearly. Coming back to the four postures is very useful because they're basic and simple and they're always going to be present. I may pursue actions against harassment at work. How do I do this without causing harm? How do I know if I should give up or proceed? The process is hard on me. You have to you have to weigh it w with wisdom. I'm assuming probably you're in a position that I would never be in, and so I acknowledge that I'm, as a white male, not subject to a lot of forms of harassment. Although you know you might very well be, but um, acknowledging the fact that I may not have much experience with that sort of thing, it's still important to understand that it has to be undertaken with wisdom. I don't really know. Uh, I think from a practical and worldly perspective that there is room as Buddhists to pursue harassment claims, but I do think there's also room for reflection on the futility or, or the um, diverse diversion the fact that it diverts you from what's important. Because I think sometimes if we get into trying to change the world, we get pulled away from changing ourselves. So I don't think it's, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of Buddhists, first of all, I would say there's a lot of Buddhists, probably the Orthodox, who would say, you don't do it. Don't do that sort of thing. It's just engaging in bad karma. I'm even suspicious that my teacher might say that sort of thing. You know, don't don't make a fuss about things. Try and put up with whatever you have to put up with. And I think there's wisdom in that. But I just want to say that sometimes practically you get put in a position where you have to. And I think that's how you should look at it, that that it's it's necessary and proper and it's it's the right thing to do. And unless you can say that, you shouldn't do it. And it's not because um It's not because it's not wrong or that it's it's not to trivialize these sorts of things that happen, but it's for your own benefit. It really is for the person's individual welfare. It's not to your benefit to get caught up in such things. It's not even in our benefit really to try and punish people. So if it's about punishing people, making sure that they pay, for example, that's not really to your benefit. It's not helpful. It doesn't make you a better person. And of course, that's what we're interested in, becoming better people. So you have to look at what's what's going on there. If this is systemic, if it's really egregious, and you can see that it's harmful for all concerned, including the person engaging it in it, if you can see clearly like that, I think there's room for it being a functional activity. It's just something that you do as a matter of course. And that's how you should see it. How do you how do you continue with it? You continue with it as a matter of course. 
and if you mean if being if a matter of course means dropping it then don't be don't cling to it emotionally you know because that's really what's making it hard what will always make things hard is when it's important to us and it shouldn't be all that should be important to you is your freedom from suffering because that's all that's going to last all these situations that we find ourselves in they're all going to pass you have to think about what's most important for your own spiritual development and that is often that statement or sort of statement is often seen as a cop-out it leads people to become disgusted with religion in general because we try to quote unquote brush these things under the rug but that that's not what this is we're not just burying our heads in the sand and ignoring uh, unwholesomeness. We're, you know, we have to be very conscious of, of unwholesomeness. And certainly someone who is harassing at work is doing something unwholesome. But as with all unwholesomeness, we have to understand how to deal with it. You can't just fix things by punishing people. You have to come to the... I mean, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It makes you more sensitive, and so you become more unwholesome. Uh, and and the person, of course, doesn't learn. They just become bitter and twisted and, and so on, feeling that they were punished, uh, vindictive even. And it can backlash, of course. It's often people who, who bring up these claims are often treated quite unfairly and, and put, through the ring, put through the ringer emotionally and, and end up losing their jobs because of the unfairness of the whole situation. But... Um, the point, the, the bigger point is that in the large picture, in the big picture, and that's what religion looks at, all religions mostly, in the bigger picture, really, truly, it is true, no matter which religion you follow, it's still true, that it doesn't really matter. All of this will pass. And what's most important is how you come out of it. Did you come out of it a better person or a worse person? And that's really what we should all be concerned with, concerned with watching our feet. And that's a metaphorical watching our feet, in, in, meaning in the sense of watching what we're doing, minding our own business in a sense. Sometimes our business does involve others. It involves activities that impact other people. I don't, as I said, I think there is room for such things to continue. I think Buddhists generally frown on them because they're practically usually taken, undertaken with a lot of emotion and cultivating stressful habits, unpleasant habits, unwholesome habits. So I, I think it falls in the category of all things worldly. They should be done, and this is all things worldly, should be done uh, functionally. You do them as a matter of course because they're the right thing to do. And when they cease to be the right thing to do, you just don't do them because they're not important. And that's that's key, is that you don't see the activity as important. What you see as important is the state of mind. And when it's impacting your state of mind negatively, it's not the right thing. Or your, your, your perspective on it is wrong, is more like it. When you have a better perspective and are able to see it clearly, the path forward will always be clear because you'll navigate not based on results or based on activities, but based on the state of mind when you're doing it. So if doing this is going to trigger, or not trigger, but if doing this is is uh, initiated because of unwholesomeness, then I'm not going to do that, of course, because I'm not going to use unwholesomeness to do things. 
not going to use anger to do things or greed to do things. Or even righteousness can be a problem because it's ego, right? So I don't deserve this. Nobody, you know, I, I, I kind of thing. You just do it because it's right. Or don't do it because it's not right. I hope that helps. What is your opinion on worldly affairs and romantic relationships being an obstacle to practice? Um, that worldly affairs and romantic relationships are an obstacle to practice? Worldly affairs not necessarily. Um, only because worldly affairs, as I was just saying, can be quite functional. You do them as a matter of course. So it would be more like getting caught up in them. Romantic relationships, I mean, again, they can just be functional, but the, the, the usage of the word romantic implies, I think, a sense that you are romantically engaged, so it's no longer functional. And so that's generally an obstacle. Can living a lay life propel one's practice because of the challenges as opposed to living a secluded, ordained life? No. No, no. No, you certainly don't need to add challenges. And adding challenges generally reduces the quality of practice. Um, You'll find when you go into monastic seclusion that there's plenty of challenges and they're much more rewarding because you're able to focus on the challenges that are most important. There's so many challenges, so many deep and profound challenges to be faced. Adding more just, just diverts you away from them and you have to deal with all these superficial challenges and more, more importantly, you get caught up in them and so you get pulled away from ever approaching the deeper, more profound challenges. When I focus on a bodily sensation, a lot of times my mind starts to expect or even sometimes fear the sensation will get more intense. So is that expectation just a thought? No, no, it, it includes a thought most likely, but the expectation is, is initiated by, as you say, fear or worry or expectation. Expectations may be a little too neutral because there's probably something more there, but you can say expecting, expecting. It's more like worrying or fear, that sort of thing, and you have to ferret that out, what exactly it is. I mean, expectation can also be wanting. You want something to happen anticipating i just try and note whatever the experience is it's more than just a thought but if there are thoughts involved you should note them as well sometimes meditation puts me into a bad mood why do you think i experience that so meditation takes you out of your 
comfort zone. The texts talk about a baby calf being pulled away from its mother. So a baby calf with its mother is in its comfort zone, and it's very much comforted by the milk and by the mother, by the presence. It just is such a comforting situation. Pull the baby cow away from the mother, as cruel as that is, um, you can see the result that causes the baby cow to uh, to become very upset. And so, so as cruel as that simile may sound, or the allegory, the, the, the simile may sound, it, it is a simile for the mind. The mind is like that. So when you pull the mind away from what it's comfortable with, you get to see all of its cravings and addictions. It's basically withdrawal. That's what it is. And so withdrawal puts you in a bad mood. Meditation doesn't have, doesn't put you in a bad mood. Meditation removes your capacity to attain the objects of your desire. It reduces your capacity or, rem or eliminates, to, in some cases, your capacity to attain the object of your desire. And that puts you in a bad mood. Again, that actually doesn't, but as a result of that, you give rise to a reaction of wanting, of dissatisfaction when you can't get what you want, and of finally anger and frustration and so on. And that's what we're trying to see. We're trying to see how that works, because really the only way to work that out is to do just that. Pull yourself out of the situation and begin to retrain the mind so that when something, a thought comes up about something you want, you can experience it without wanting. When you see something that you would normally crave for or so on, think of something you want, you're able to experience it just as it is. You see how craving and dissatisfaction and frustration, how all of that is really the problem. The problem is not the inability to attain what you want. The problem is the wanting in the first place. How do we deal with catastrophic thinking during an episode of a panic attack? So try your best through the training of mindfulness to work that out in advance or to cultivate the training that allows you to deal with it at every moment so it never gets to the state of panic. Um, when you cultivate mindfulness, of course, it's on a momentary level. And so you're able to break down these pr the process of working yourself into a panic. And as a result, you may never reach that panic attack state. But because that means all along the path, it can be at the point where you're in a panic attack. So you deal with thinking by saying thinking. You deal with emotions by noting the emotion. It's important to separate things out into the moments because that's what you're going to do through the training. So before the panic attack, separating it out into moments of thought, 
moments of panic. The panic isn't the thought. Thoughts are not catastrophic. Thoughts can be, if you suppose you think to yourself, this is, uh, this is bad, this is um, a panic attack, this is a problem, this is overwhelming, but they're just thoughts. And it's not the thoughts that are really triggering, it's the reaction to the thought or the emotion associated with it. And you have to separate those out. If you're afraid of something or worried about something, if you dislike something, you have to note all of that, the fear, the anxiety, note those as well. Further, you have to note the physical sensations because they will trigger not just thoughts, but physical sensations that occur during a panic attack or before a panic attack. People who are susceptible to panic attacks often have tension throughout their lives that they don't even notice or that they try to escape by massages or by lying down or, or exercise or so on, all of which is only a temporary solution. Try And meditation instead focuses on separating the experiences from the reaction. So... They don't trigger, they don't trigger a feedback loop that leads eventually to the snowballing of the emotion to the point where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like a snowball rolling down a hill. For those of you who don't have snow, snowballing is like you roll a snowball down the hill and theoretically it gets bigger and bigger as it picks up snow until it becomes a boulder. And so you, if you break things into their constituent parts, you, you break that feedback loop by noting tense, tense, by noting worry, by noting thought. At the moment of the panic attack, another one you could add into that is being overwhelmed. If you feel overwhelmed or if you're panicking, you can just note that as well. Because ultimately the big problem is that we perceive things as problems. We perceive things as something that needs to be fixed, and so we muck around in it. We get more invested in it. And getting more and more invested and obsessed with is what leads to the snowballing. If you're able to just remind yourself, yeah, I'm afraid, yeah, I'm worried, yeah, I'm tense, and so what, you know, that's it. And then there's no problem. But when you perceive something as a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. And that makes it worse, that's what snowballs it. And so even if you are having a panic attack, if you can't breathe even, let's say, the worst case scenario, or your body goes tense, or you black out, well, yeah, that, that happened. And if you can start to see things like that, you're you're well on your way to freedom start to see even the worst of the worst just as it is and when you start to see things just as they are it's a whole new perspective you start to see that things like panic are not really a problem depression isn't really a problem all of these things that are crippling and debilitating because we see them as problems and perpetuate them as a result are actually not that harmful because they're just moments they don't actually exist they exist as boogeymen in our minds, but the reality is just experiences. Okay, it's four o'clock. If there are any further tier one, let's get through them. But I would say we'll 
end the questions. So no more new questions. You're welcome to chat again in the chat. I'm going to unpin this. Okay, Bhante, we've got four more Tier 1 questions queued. All right, go for it. How do you break the habit of mental proliferation or overthinking? I want to just say with the practice, I mean, that's what mindfulness is about. The whole seeing things just as they are, reminding yourself it is what it is. When you say to yourself, pain, pain, for example, then that's that's the whole point of that because it's creating a clear thought. It is what it is. So uh, if you're interested, you could check out our booklet on how to meditate, maybe take an at-home course. And that's the whole point of that. I mean, it's a good question because it's really a good uh, summarization of the problem, summarization of the problem. I attain states of realization, but then lose them. Why is that? Because that's not what this is about, per se. Realization is maybe a good uh, indicator that you're on the right path, but it's not the actual practice. Realization, I mean, think about it. States of realization are momentary. You, you realize something, okay, and then that realization is gone because you're thinking about something else. So you've already lost it. But that, the problem is thinking that it was somehow a, a thing you could cling to. It isn't a thing, it's just a moment. What you can hold on to is your state of mind and your habits, your propensity, your inclination. And that relates to how you how you view things, how you approach things. That's what we're looking for. Try and cultivate the habit of clarity where you approach things in terms of seeing them just as they are. How do you deal with physical pain getting worse over time with meditation? like back pain getting worse over weeks of meditation? Well, if it's getting worse like that, you might want to adjust your, you probably want to adjust your posture. Uh, not always, because if it's just pain and you don't have a back problem or so on, you can just be patient with it and live with it. I mean, eventually the mind is not going to be upset by the pain if you practice well and properly. But sometimes it can be that you actually need to, especially with the back, you need to maybe adjust your posture, maybe sometimes sit in a chair. Try and do back and forth. Don't get, don't get uh, dependent on the chair, but sometimes take a break and do some meditation in a chair is, I think, a good idea. How do we move forward from the crippling inaction when dealing with remorse and regret for bad deeds? And how do we strengthen resolve to not repeat bad habits in meditation practice? Well, we don't really strengthen resolve not to repeat bad habits. I mean, that can be useful on a basic level, but ultimately you have to face your bad habits and uh, eradicate them through insight, through seeing clearly. Crippling in action, I, don't, I think that's just a description. There's no such thing really as crippling in action. Um, you know, I mean, physically, yeah, you, you stop doing things, but mentally you're always acting. And so how do you deal with it? You start to be mindful. Physical actions will be, will, will be very much based on your state of mind. So if you change your state of mind, 
of course, the inaction is solved. Just try and work on being mindful, not on doing things, not on getting yourself up and doing things, but on changing the state of mind and letting your actions flow as a result of that. Okay, Bhante, those were the four. Great. A lot of people today. I see now that we have 111. I think that's maybe a record. It's good to see people still coming out. Interested in these things that we believe are good. So thank you for your help, Chris and Olivia and Max. Thank you all who came to watch, listen, and get interested in good things. May we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.